Welcome to the Shift Gold Friday Gold Wrap, your overview of this week's Precious Metals News. It's Friday, December 23rd. I'm your host, Mike Meharry. Thanks for tuning in. Now, I know this might come as a shock, but some people have accused me of crying wolf. Because, of course, I've been talking about an impending economic collapse for months and months and months. I mean, to some degree, I've been talking about it for years. And, you know, you look at somebody like Peter Schiff, he's been talking about it for well over a decade. And I can understand why people might think, well, Mary Schiff, these perpetual bears, they're just crying wolf because, look, nothing's happened. They keep talking about it and nothing has happened. Well, in this show, I want to talk a little bit about why maybe I think it's a little unfair to accuse me of crying wolf. But before we get to that, I want to talk a little bit about the yo-yoing in the gold market we had this week. Some serious ups and downs that were driven by a couple of news headlines. And I think it's interesting because it really demonstrates just how much the news of the day can move markets. Um, it's, it's like we forget yesterday's headline and just move to the next headline. And of course, if you're investing in the super, super short term, it's important to be able to kind of anticipate and try to move with these gyrations in the markets that you get with the news of the day. On the other hand, if you're investing on a longer time horizon, I think sometimes the, the news of the day can kind of cloud your judgment if you get too caught up in any given headline. So let's look at the ups and downs. We'll start with the ups. On Tuesday, the Bank of Japan blinked, sort of, and shifted to a bit tighter monetary policy. Now, actually, I think the perception that the Japanese Central Bank made a big policy shift was bigger than the reality. Nevertheless, it significantly moved markets. Now, what happened? Well, while most central banks around the world have tightened monetary policy in an effort to bring price inflation under control, Japan has done the exact opposite. In fact, it doubled down on its loose monetary policy. Last spring, the Bank of Japan vowed to buy an unlimited number of Japanese government bonds in order to hold the 10-year yield below 0.25%. So in effect, this policy was quantitative easing with no limits. It was QE infinity. And the bank basically said it would create an unlimited quantity of yen out of thin air. In other words, the Bank of Japan put its big fat thumb on the Japanese bond market and created artificial demand to hold the price of its bonds up and keep the yields low. Basically, it's the same as what the Fed does in in quantitative easing, right? It buys U.S. Treasury bonds with money it creates out of thin air. So it injects dollars into the economy and buys bonds, and it produces an artificial demand for the bonds. And so that holds the price up and keeps the interest rates and the yields low. So Japan did the same thing, except it's with yen. So they're just pumping yen into the economy, and predictably, the yen tanked. So on Tuesday, the Bank of Japan widened its target range for 10-year Japanese bond yields, and in effect, it raised the interest rates. That's the bottom line. This move strengthened the yen, it put more pressure on weakening dollars, the yen strengthened, and it rattled the global bond market. So under the new policy, the Bank of Japan said it would allow the yield on the 10-year to move 
up to 50 basis points on either side of its 0% target. So ideally, it wants it at 0%, but it will allow it to to fluctuate. The previous policy only allowed for a 25 basis point fluctuation. So it could go from negative 0.25% to positive 0.25%. Now it can go from negative 0.5% to positive 0.5%. And since the yield is staying close to the high end of that scale, in effect, this new policy raised the yield to 0.5%. Now, this policy change was in response to rising volatility in the bond market. The Bank of Japan statement noted the increase in global market volatility, saying it has significantly affected the markets in Japan. Quote, the functioning of bond markets has deteriorated, particularly in terms of relative relationships among interest rates of bonds with different maturities and arbitrage relationships between spot and future markets, unquote. Now, you might recall that on the show a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the fact that there are underlying problems in the U.S. Treasury bond market. According to a Reuters report last month, the U.S. Federal Reserve's ongoing balance sheet drawdown has exacerbated low liquidity and high volatility in the $20 trillion U.S. Treasury debt market, raising questions on whether the Fed needs to rethink this strategy. So the problems in the U.S. and the Japanese bond markets are not unrelated. Keep in mind that the bond market in reality is a global market. So this move by the Bank of Japan sent some significant ripples through the markets earlier this week. The Japanese yen surged on the news, as I mentioned, it strengthened. The dollar fell by as much as 3.3% against the yen. Uh, With the rally, the yen charted the biggest single-day increase against the dollar since March 1995. The weakening dollar, of course, spilled over into the gold market. So when the dollar weakens, gold tends to gain. And the yellow metal rose over 30 bucks an ounce and pushed back above $1,800. In fact, gold got as high as about $1,820 per ounce after this big announcement by the Bank of Japan. Now, in the big scheme of things, The move honestly wasn't particularly significant. I mean, if you look at the actual nuts and bolts of what's going on, you know, the Bank of Japan left interest rates pegged at negative 0.1%. So, you know, they're deeply um, negative in terms of real interest rates. And their quantitative easing program remains in place. In fact, the Japanese Central Bank has committed to buying more bonds in an effort to defend this new target. So it's not like the BOJ suddenly went on a war against inflation like the Fed. It is still committed to creating inflation in order to keep its bond yields uh, no higher than 0.5%. Now, this could potentially create an ugly spiral. A 0.5% bond yield is really, really low. I mean, you know, especially when you figure that the U.S. Treasury bond is well over 3. So, 3%. So, the Bank of Japan will have to buy more bonds with more yen created out of thin air in order to support a higher price and this artificially low yield. So, it gave it a little bit of breathing room, but it didn't solve the problem. And 
this is just going to create more volatility, which may force the central bank in Japan to widen that target rate further, in effect, to raise interest rates more. And of course, that would put more downward pressure on the dollar. But it still wouldn't solve the problems in the Japanese bond market, which is purely a product of interventionist monetary policy. So much of what is going on in the economy today is the result of central bank money manipulation and government stupid policy. So it's really hard to tell in the long run how this uh, Bank of Japan thing is going to play out. The reality, though, is the markets, I think, overreacted a bit, and that set the stage for some other headline to spark a sell-off in gold. So we got a big boost in gold because of this, this news event. That kind of set the stage. We're just waiting for a reason to sell, right? Well, we got that on Thursday with fewer than expected weekly jobless claims. So, you know, everybody's watching the job market. That seems to be the number one economic indicator that everybody is fixated on. And the projection was for 220,200 new jobless claims over the last week, which is a big number. The actual number was 216,000, which was still an increase of 2,000 over last week and incidentally is still a big number. But since it missed that projection to the downside, everybody took it as a sign that the labor market is still too tight. Therefore, the Fed can keep the foot on the monetary tightening gas pedal. We don't have to worry about a recession because we've got strong jobs numbers. And so the Fed's going to keep pushing those interest rates up. We're not going to get the pivot. And Wall Street, you know, Wall Street hates that because they want the pivot. They want the easy money. So we had a big sell-off in stocks. Um, We also got news at around the same time that there was an upward revision in the Q3 GDP number uh, to 3.2%. So, you know, pretty healthy growth last quarter. So all of this caused the dollar to rise. Stocks sold off along with gold, and the yellow metal ended up falling back below $1,800 an ounce on the news. So basically what happened is it gave up all of the gains it gained earlier with the Bank of Japan news. Now, we've talked about the labor market, right? These numbers don't add up. Over the last seven months, and I've talked about this before, the economy supposedly added 2.9 million new jobs, but there are only 12,000 more people employed now than there were then. So most of these new jobs are really the result of people taking second jobs, third jobs. It's a big increase uh, of people moving from full-time employment to part-time employment, and then they're working two or three part-time jobs. And of course, a part-time job counts as a job just like a full-time job. So you're getting kind of a a puffed-up number of jobs. If you really look at how many more people are working, it's not that many. And of course, the other thing to keep in mind is that the labor market is a lagging economic indicator. Ryan McMakin over at the Mises Institute talked about this in an article he wrote uh, that he wrote, pointing out that basically the Fed is just winging it. And I'll link to my overview of that article on the show notes page. It's well worth a read. But here's what Ryan said about employment. Quote, there is no reason to expect to see rising unemployment in the early phase of a Fed tightening cycle. And I mean, I know it feels like they've been tightening forever, but you know, really, they just really started tightening in March. Uh, McMakin goes on and he says, history shows that rising unemployment tends to come months after the Fed ends its tightening and reverts 
to a loosening cycle. We can see this in the delays between peaking Fed fund rates and peaking unemployment rates. For example, in the lead up to the recession in the early 1990s, the federal funds rate started going down again in June 1989, but unemployment didn't peak until the summer of 1992. Similarly, the federal funds rate began to fall in late 2000, but unemployment in the dot-com bust did not peak until the summer of 2003. So basically, in both of those cases, a three-year lag between when the Fed pivoted and when we peaked in unemployment. So bottom line is, probably shouldn't be fixated totally on jobs as the evaluation of what is going on in the economy. As far as the GDP goes, we've talked about this before as well. The big GDP number we got in Q3 was almost entirely a product of a smaller trade deficit, which was basically driven by a strong dollar, which decreased or, or yeah, decreased our um, our import costs, and coupled with uh, more exports going out because Biden was selling oil out of the strategic reserve. So there's no reason to think that this trade deficit is going to continue to shrink. In fact, over the last two months, it has widened. And as it continues to widen, it's going to bring that GDP number down. It's really a function of math, not actual economic growth. So for all of the market yo-yoing, Nothing really significantly changed this week, and as far as gold goes, uh, we basically ended up right back where we were to begin with. Um, I've got some interesting data on gold that I'm still gathering and looking at it over the past year, and I think there's a perception that gold has done really bad in 2020, uh, 2022, and in reality, especially when you look at other assets, hadn't done so bad, but we'll get into that as we get into the end of the year and have more solid numbers. Anyway... I would argue that the Bank of Japan news is far more significant, you know, kind of looking at what's going on in the economy and and reading between the lines than the job numbers, because it underscores the volatility in the bond market and I think more broadly in the global economy, whereas, as we just discussed, the jobs numbers are kind of a lagging indicator. Um, So, you know, I actually think the bond market could be one of the things that breaks and precipitates a crisis and a, a real Fed turn. But, um, you know, I also think that this could grind on for a while. So this brings me to something that I actually kind of touched on last week, but I want to develop it a little further today because I, I was thinking about it um, after I talked about it last Friday and uh, and did a little digging and some some research. And as I said on the top of the show, I know some of you think I'm just crying wolf when I talk about impending economic collapses. Um, And, you know, last week I laid out my case, right? If you haven't listened to last week's show, go back and listen because I make the case as to why I think the economy is ultimately going to crash. And I think it's a pretty good case. But some people will counter that I've been talking about this for months, and you could say I've been talking about it for years. Nothing has happened. Now, I don't think that's the best argument in the world. I would just counter that, yeah, you're right, nothing has happened yet. And then I would ask on what basis they think that there isn't going to be a crash and they wouldn't have any kind of basis other than, well, you've been talking about it and it hadn't happened. That's not an argument. But I am sympathetic because I do understand why folks may be skeptical of people like me, Peter Schiff, and others who have been gloomy about the trajectory of the economy for so long. I mean, in Peter's case, he's been talking about a crash for more than a decade, right? Here's the thing. 
predicting the exact timing of an event, particularly an economic event, is what we're talking about here. That's much harder than generally recognizing that the event is on the horizon, that the table is set for the event. You know, you might know that dinner's coming because the table's set, but that didn't tell you what time dinner's going to be served, right? Um, it's a little bit like forecasting weather, right? A meteorologist might know that a cold front is coming next week. She can see the changes in the atmosphere. But knowing a cold front is looming and saying that it will come through precisely at 10.30 a.m. on Wednesday, that's two different matters. As I explained last week, I am certain an economic downturn is imminent because I can see it brewing in the economic atmosphere. And again, listen to last week's show. I'd lay out the case step by step. But in a nutshell, this economy is not built to operate in a high interest rate environment. And the Fed has now raised interest rates to the highest level since 2007. Quite simply, the U.S. economy is addicted to easy money. It is addicted to artificially low interest rates. It's addicted to quantitative easing. It's addicted to money printing. You can't take an addict's drug away without sending him into withdrawal. Now, I can't tell you exactly when that withdrawal will hit full force. Depends on the addict. Nor can I predict exactly you know, what will kick off that withdrawal, even what it will look like. But you know, here's what's interesting. Even though I can't predict it, looking back, I can I can tell you that the period that we're in now is a lot like the period that was leading up to the Great Recession. I was thinking about this, and a few days ago, I decided, you know, I'm going to go back and revisit the timeline before the 2008 financial crisis and the ensuing Great Recession. And I realized that the dynamics were much the same in 2006 and 2007 as they are right now. At the time, Peter Schiff, Ron Paul, and a few others were warning of a housing bust and a financial crisis, even as the mainstream insisted, everything's fine. In fact, right up until the point Lehman Brothers went under in the fall of 2008, some people were still insisting everything was fine. Now, in retrospect, everything was far from fine as far back as 2006. Ron Paul, Peter Schiff, and others were talking about it, just like Peter and I are talking about it today. Here's the thing. The Fed knew everything wasn't fine. That's why it started cutting interest rates in September 2007, a full year before Lehman Brothers went under. Of course, they started cutting rates while insisting everything's fine. So here's the timeline. In the aftermath of 9-11 and the dot-com bubble bursting, the Fed dropped rates to 1%, which at the time was a historically low level. And that blew up the housing bubble, right? You get artificially low rates, mortgage rates tumbled, everybody started investing in houses, we got the housing bubble. Now, in 2004, the Fed began normalizing interest rates. Those rates peaked at 5.25% in 2006. That precipitated the housing bust and ultimately the financial crisis in 2008. But notice what I said, 2006 is when the Fed peaked interest rates. It was almost two years later that we had the financial crisis. So it took a long time, years, for all of that interest rate hiking 
to prick the bubble that all of that years of interest rate lowering created. So you see the parallels here, right? The difference is the timeline is much more compressed. The Fed dropped rates to zero at the onset of the coronavirus pandemic and did some $5 trillion in quantitative easing. And keep in mind, it never really finished normalizing interest rates after the Great Recession, right? It started in earnest in, in 2018, and it raised rates, it raised rates, and then the stock market crashed in the fall of 2018, and then the Fed stopped raising rates, and then in 2019, it was already cutting rates before the coronavirus pandemic. So the bubble was already starting to pop from raising rates just a little bit after the 2008 financial crisis. So then we did all of the stuff we did during the pandemic. That was a staggering amount of money injected into the economy in basically a year and a half. So an extremely short amount of time. Unsurprisingly, we got a surge of price inflation. The Fed tried to play it off as transitory for a while, but finally had to go to war against inflate. Inflation, geez, tongue-tied. Went to war against inflation earlier this year. So it's now hiked rates to within 1% of the level that it drove rates to before the housing bust. But there is a major difference between then and now. The bubbles are bigger. There's more debt in the economy. There's more malinvestment in the economy. There's bigger and more misallocations of assets in the economy. Again, trillions of dollars injected into the economy in a very short amount of time. The bubbles are huge. So if the extent of the bust is commensurate with the extent of the boom, we're in for one hell of a bust. So my point here is that everything is fine until it isn't. Just because something hasn't happened doesn't mean that it won't. We saw this in 2006. Everything's fine. Everything's Nothing's happened. We're fine. And then it wasn't fine. I think the same thing is happening right now. When something is unsustainable, it ends. But there's a big difference in knowing that it's unsustainable and that it's going to end and predicting exactly when it will end. And if you, if you look back at this timeline, you realize that Everything happens on a much longer timeline than we expect. You know, we live in a 30-second soundbite world. We, we operate on the news of the day, on the headlines of the day, just like we saw the gold market yo-yo on two pieces of news this week. That's how we kind of view the world. Most people don't have a very long frame of reference. They don't have much of a sense of history, and, and so everything seems compressed, it's kind of the, the internet social media age. But in reality, it took two, three years for the housing bubble to blow up. And then it took another two or three years before it really deflated and then popped and created the financial, financial crisis. So the, the, the point that I'm making is that maybe I am crying wolf, but just because it's been a long timeline, even if you look at a decade, because you can see this cycle of, of intervention. I think that the, the economy was on the verge of collapsing in 2018. The Fed was stepping in at that point to try to rescue it. And it kind of got its bacon saved by the fact that we had coronavirus because it gave it the excuse to go all in on quantitative easing and rate cuts. So, you know, if you're investing for the short term, you've got to look at the risk reward of trying to time things. And a lot of people do that. And, and let's 
make no mistake, you can make a lot of money in a Fed-induced bubble. But you damn well better get out of it before it pops. And when it does, you don't want to be holding a bag of depreciating dollars, right? The bottom line is you always want to be prepared for the inevitable when it happens. You can't prepare for it afterwards. One way to prepare for a major crash in a currency crisis is to hold hard assets like gold and silver. Now, I'm not suggesting, I've said this before, I don't think you should sell everything and put all of your money in gold and silver. That's not my MO. Um, I'm just suggesting you might want to think about hedging against stagflation. You might want to consider the fact that the economy is teetering on a Fed-induced bust on the heels of a Fed-induced boom. And you might want to consider how to be prepared for that, for the possibility of stagflation, for the possibility that the Fed goes back to quantitative easing and money printing, because I think it will. And so that means inflation is not whipped no matter what you see the CPI doing. You just need to look at the big picture. That's kind of what I'm getting at. So, you know, whether I'm crying wolf or not, still not a bad idea to be prepared for eventualities. Have a well-balanced portfolio. That's why I suggest talking to a shift gold precious metal specialist. Call 1-888-GOLD-160 or email info at shiftgold.com. Or you can just go to shiftgold.com, go to the Getting Started tab. You can talk to a precious metal specialist right there online and chat and um, talk to them about how Precious metals might fit into your investment portfolio, how you can be prepared for the possibility of a crisis. These guys are fantastic. They know their stuff, and they're going to look at your situation and try to help you figure out if gold and silver is um, something that you need to consider. So do that today. And uh, before I go, I just want to wish everybody a Merry Christmas Uh for those who celebrate it, for those uh, who celebrate Hanukkah, I hope you've had a great Hanukkah. Um, I'm going to put in the show notes page a fun little Christmas thing uh, that I did. Uh, basically, I'm going to ruin your childhood memories of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. So check that over, out over on the show notes page. There's also a fun little video from Shift Gold. Uh, but again, wish you a very Merry Christmas. And uh, I'm going to talk to you all next week before the new year so be ready for that for now that's a gold wrap for this week you can get more details on all of these stories and more and of course keep up with the latest precious metals news and analysis throughout the week over at shiftgold.com news if you haven't done it already and i can't imagine why you haven't but you can subscribe to the friday gold wrap over at itunes we are on uh it's not iTunes anymore. It's Apple Podcast. I need to change that in my notes. Uh, Apple Cop Podcast. We're on Google Play. We're on Stitcher. Uh, we're on Spotify, I think. All of the things that we're on, YouTube, all of those links over on the show notes page at shipcold.com slash nudes. Um, you can email me, mmahari at shipgold.com. Love to hear from folks. And again, Merry Christmas, and I'll talk to you all again next week.